Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Dr. Abdul Wahid. You're most welcome, sir. Assalamu alaikum, Paul, and your audience. Uh, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> You're most welcome. Uh, Dr. Abdul Wahid is currently the chairman of the UK Executive Committee of Hizbut Tahrir. He has been published on the websites of Foreign Affairs, Open Democracy, uh, The Times Higher Educational Supplement, and Prospect Magazine. And you can follow him on Twitter, and I'll link to it in the description below. And Dr. Abdul has kindly agreed today to discuss what happened on this day on the 3rd of March 1924 and what was its impact on Muslims at the time and subsequently. So what actually happened on the 3rd of March 1924? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Um, 3rd of March 1924, the Grand National Assembly of Turkey in Ankara, uh, under the leadership of Mustafa Kemal, uh, formally passed a law abolishing the institution of the caliphate, the Khilafah, uh, the office of Khilafah, uh, which had been in existence in one way, shape or form, since the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So that's 99 years ago in Hijri terms, mm -hmm. which was the 28th of Rajab, 1342 in uh, Hijri terms. Sorry, right. 99 years in Gregorian terms and 102 years in Hijri terms. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I'll just put up the, uh, I know you've got some slides here, the abolition of the I paper. have. Yes. I have, I have. I'll, I'll flick through them. There, there are a lot of slides, but they're more for my aid than anything else. And I, I, I'd like to start with why it matters. And mm. what, what, I, what I hope to outline is why it matters, what actually happened. We've talked about briefly the impact on Muslims at the time. And actually, really importantly, how did we get to that point where such an act could happen in a Muslim country where the Ottoman Khilafah had stood for hundreds of years. Mm. Um, I, I'm going to share a, a, a book list with you to share on your on your blog later, Paul. But there's a there's a lot there. Yeah. Um, so 99 Gregorian years. Next year is uh, 100 years, the century. Um, and why does it matter? Well, it matters because it's about something very central in Islam. We've talked about this before on blogging theology, and I know you've had other guests that have talked about it. Mm. The Khilafah is an aspect of Islam that is very central. Uh, it's an obligation on Muslims to have a, a, a bayat to a Khalifa. It's the means by which Allah, the method by which Allah gave to enact so many of our Islamic laws uh, and it was uh, something that the Prophet ﷺ told us a lot about in his sunnah. So just as an issue on that scale, it's very important. Understanding what happened tells you a lot about global politics, about plots, political plots, political traps, and actually hopefully lessons that we can learn moving forward. Hmm. And actually one very contemporary impact of this, Paul, is this tragic recent earthquake in the mm. last month in Turkey. Um, you know, one of the things people have been talking about is the fact that whichever side of the border you're on, the Turkey side or the Syria side, different amounts of aid are able to get through. Mm -hmm. 
Um, that line was drawn in the aftermath of World War One, as yeah. part of the process that we're going to talk about, which led to the abolition of the Khilafah. Um, the Treaty of Lausanne in 1923, one of its roles was to earmark territory for the new Turkey and the rest of the Middle East. And one of the lines it drew was described in the Franco-Turkish Agreement of 1921, where it describes this line, which, uh, you know, here, and everything in the orange is the earthquake zone, where things have been damaged. So that is one very real live issue where aid hasn't been able to get through to people in Syria because of what happened in 1924. Got it. What happened on the 3rd of March? Mm. This is from the Times, March 1924, that the motion was passed in the uh, Turkish Assembly, the Grand National Assembly. And this is from the economist at the same time. So it was a global event. Uh, and quite a lot of the media of that time addressed it. Can I just yeah. go back to that? I just want to read, I'll just read it. It's quite shocking. Yeah. The economist, obviously the very prestigious um, British slash American, I'm not quite sure who owns it, um, uh, journal. And it says here, this is obviously a, a modern sort of uh, edition of the 1924 um Article, the repudiation of the caliphate by the Turks marks an epoch in the expansion of Western ideas over the non-Western world, i.e. the Muslim world, for our Western principles of national sovereignty and self-government are the real forces uh, to which the unfortunate Abdul Mejdi Effendi has fallen a, a victim and, and so on. So this, so the, the economist here is triumphing, uh, triumphing. This is as a great uh, yeah. triumphing as as a, a victory of Western ideas. It says that uh, uh, over the the non-Western world, i.e., the Muslim world. So this is seen as a hegemonic victory for Britain uh, and France and so on over the Muslim. Extraordinarily blunt, candid admission of what's how this was perceived um, at that time. Thank you for that. And, and I think this this will come back to one theme that you'll see throughout where you could look at this just as a power struggle, whether a power struggle within Turkey, whether a power struggle within the Middle East, whether a power struggle across the world, or you could see it as, as a battle of ideas, a civilizational uh, uh, conflict. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and The Economist clearly saw it in those terms. And many wow. of the protagonists at the time clearly saw it in those terms. Um, Thanks for sharing. Uh, That's particularly yeah. insightful. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and this is the, the, the central figure here is Sultan Abdul Majid II, the last Khalifa of the Muslims, at mm. the point where a delegation has been sent from Ankara to inform him that he and his family have to leave. So one of the laws that was passed was the abolition of the Khilafah. The other law that was passed was that the Khalifa would be expelled. Wow. Okay. Uh, Abdul Majid uh, died in 1944, 20 years later in France. He, he lived in, in, in Switzerland for a while and then in France. Uh, actually, when he died, um, uh, they refused to have his body returned to Turkey. The Turkish government then refused to receive him back in Turkey. Um, mm. Anyone who visits Istanbul, you'll see the graves of many, many Khulafa there. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Abdul Majid was not allowed to be returned to Turkey. His body was kept in the uh, um, 
in the um, mortuary of the main mosque in Paris for 10 days. And eventually, through major diplomatic negotiations, he was transferred to Medina. Mm -hmm. So he's buried in Janatul Baqi uh, alongside uh, other Khulafa. <laughs> so, uh, you know, irony of fate. And the man most responsible, I, mean, I think lesson number one, you don't know what you've lost till it's gone. Okay, mm. and, and really you will feel this in this story mm -hmm. that many of the people that even supported the changes that led up to the abolition of the Khilafah, when it came to the point, they were shocked it was going to happen and mm. they were unhappy. Um, but what's happened has happened. And over the subsequent century, we have seen a very unstable Middle East Proxy rulers, often tyrannical, either um, monarchies which usurp wealth or military dictators, change by coup and counter-coup, wars, occupations, particularly the occupation of Palestine, wealth, a very wealthy region where the wealth has been either wasted or stolen. Mm. And that's the legacy of the abolition of the Khilafah. Mm. Uh, and lesson number two that we're about to hear about is when you look at what people do, politicians, look at what they do as a whole and not what they say, and I'll come back to that, mm. okay? This is the man, uh -huh. Mustafa Kamal, died 1938, as yet not buried. Mm. He's entombed. Oh, in he's, I wonder what you meant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. yes, he's entombed in a sarcophagus, a 42-ton sarcophagus, no less, um, in a mausoleum, originally in a museum, and then in a mausoleum, and um, very like Pharaoh, you could say, because um, that's, you know, and the picture on the left is Mustafa Kemal in 1918, the picture on the right is him some years later, and I, I've chosen those two pictures for a particular reason. Uh as we said, what happened on the 3rd of March, but it, it, it was the abolition of the Khilafah as an institution and the office of the Khilafah, but it was the third main change in two years which led up to it, which were giving clues it was going to happen. Mm. So in November 1922, Mustafa Kemal abolished the Sultanate. So in Ottoman Turkey, in the Ottoman state, the head of state was the Sultan. Sultan in Arabic meaning power, the one with the power. Mm. And um, the Sultan was also the Khalifa. So the two roles were, were in one. And in uh, 1922, they abolished the office of the Sultan and they transferred the political power to the Grand National Assembly in Ankara. Okay, right. uh, and the, but yet the Khalifa was still officially the head of state. Right. They've been separated from the, the Sultan aspect, yeah. been abolished, but the the religious kind of uh, Islamic uh, uh, Khalifa still existed at that time. That hadn't been absolutely. abolished. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. The the religious aspect had been abolished, uh, had been had been kept. Um, yeah. The actual Khalifa at that time, a couple of this was was uh, okay. uh, Sultan Mehmed who. This famous photograph where he had to leave overnight on a uh, British warship because uh, he feared for his life. Yeah. Uh, and then about a year later in 1923, um, 
Mustafa Kamal. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I'll declare Turkey as a republic, meaning the Ottoman or Osmanli state, which had been in the where the head of state had always been from the House of Osman, defended, descended from the first uh, sultan of the Osmans the, the, in the, 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 the tribe that eventually became the Ottoman state, mm. that was abolished. So the caliph was still the caliph of the Muslims, but actually he didn't even have a figurehead role in the state that existed. It was now an officially a Turkish republic. Uh, and in fact, he became a bit of a magnet for uh, people to, opposition figures to rally around. Uh, and that that actually uh, provoked Kamal in 1924 to actually abolish the Khilafah ultimately. So ultimately in 2023, he became like a symbolic figure. He didn't have any institutional power. The Ottoman state had been abolished, it became a republic. But he never ceased to exist as you said, a figurehead, a symbol of of Islamic unity, but even that wasn't enough for Kamal, who uh, decided in 3rd of March 924, as you say, to abolish even that symbolic remnant uh, of the yeah. uh, as an And the, the symbolism of this is, I mean, it, it, to think about that we're in a very big era of, era of decline by this stage. So the Khalifa and the Sultan hasn't had real power since about 1909. Oh. Um, and, but He's still seen around the world in Friday prayers across the world. They still, when they give the khutbah and they praise Allah and they send salawat and salam on the Prophet they make dua for their khalifa, their amir. Yeah, so so this is part of Friday prayers across the world, basically. Mm -hmm. So that even continues till 1923, but by 3rd of March 1924, even that doesn't exist. Okay, so... And that's that's Sultan Mehmed uh, who's been expelled. Um, uh, I, I put this slide in because actually the debates in the National Assembly were pretty rough. You you have you have in the lead up to this, in all these three events, there's a lot of shouting, there's a lot of disruption, there's a lot of force. There's a one one report I read an atmosphere of terror where yeah. people are being shouted down, um, and Kamal cannot present for a long time he cannot present this as a desire to do away with islam and implement secularism he mm. cannot do that because of the nature of the people uh, uh, in turkey even those in the young turks and otherwise so they tried to use islamic arguments now i'll show you a few quotes that even mustafa kamal himself used them but this chap sayyid bey was mm. a 
a member of the Young Turks who st studied fiqh and used to teach fiqh in the university. And in the assembly, he gave a speech where he even like praises the, 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 the institution of Khilafah historically, but says, you know what, it's not necessary anymore. Mm. Important point, because, you know, for 1,300 years, the, the consensus in Sunni Islam is that you have to have Khilafah, you have to have a Khalifa. And, right? and by the way, it's not just, if I may, uh, it's not just Sunni Islam. As far as I can see, it's in all the groups and sects, be they Shia, yeah, right. yeah. even marginal sects. In fact, yeah. it seems to be from across every conceivable group. It's hard to find one that didn't have it. So that this so, was a universally understood obligation, that it was normative for virtually everyone who ever lived. So, so what you're saying now was quite um, a new thing in, in many ways. It is. And, and again, as I say, one of the reasons this subject becomes very complex is that you, people at that time would wonder, how the hell can a guy like this, Sayyid Bey, say that you don't need a Khalifa? How can he be interpreting Islamic texts to say that? I mean, he used weird arguments. One of his arguments were was um, uh, the ayah in the Quran, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Al-Yawma akmaltu lakum dinakum. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this day I've completed your religion. Okay, so he says, well, if that was the time when the religion was completed, then how can any caliph or caliphate that comes after the time of the prophet count for anything? Okay, mm. uh, despite the fact that it counts for something because the prophet said it counted for something. It counts for something because it's enacting Quranic rules. So... What we'll see in this presentation about the abolition of the Khilafah is how ideas became distorted over time to allow a guy like this to come and say this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Kamal was influenced, um, and he influenced others. Um, there's talk about when he was very young, um, being exposed to Dominican monks. I've only found that in one, one source. Um, I found another source that says um, that he um, was sent on a military mission to France where he was exposed to ideas by Voltaire and Rousseau. Actually, a couple of sources mention that. Again, another theme that you'll see coming up amongst many people whose ideas changed over generations, that they'd been exposed to Western ideas, often by traveling to the West. Mm, yeah. And, and this is the guy that is said to have influenced Kamal a lot, a guy called Zia Gokalp, uh, a sociologist, a poet, and a thinker associated with the Young Turks. Um, and he was said to be the father of uh, Turkish nationalism, as opposed to Ottomanism that had existed before, uh, Pan-Turkism or Turanism versus Pan-Islamism, which had been become the thing known in Abdul Hamid's time before this, and secular ideas rather than Islam. And if you, you see, Gokalp is infatuated with the West uh, mm. and the nation state. Uh, and he, he talks about uh, uncovering pre-Islamic Turkish past, which has remained with the people, and to graft Western civilization in its entirety onto it in order to equal European powers militarily. Again, another theme that's going to come up throughout this is going to be the fact that the Ottoman state by this time is seeing itself move from being a superpower in the world to quite diminished. 
Mm. And looking at how come Europe, which was in the dark ages when the Ottoman state was flourishing civilizationally, and how come it suddenly become powerful, rich, and technologically advanced. And, and many people, including Gokalp, they, they look at the West and they think, oh, how come it's advanced? We need a bit of that. And the that they identify is often the nation state or governance or democracy or secular ideas, as opposed to maybe they got rich because they colonized other parts of the world, took their resources and spent money on technology. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and also the ideas in the West, liberal democracy and secularism and so on, are the, the, uh, the outgrowth, the outworking of very particular historical intellectual developments. They're, they're not just universal and uh, the natural state of things. They're to do with the wars of religion and the Reformation and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Um, and so they, they have, you know, the, the European DNA all over them. They're, they're not, obviously there for export, uh, despite what perhaps some people today might think. So to graph them on to an Islamic uh, uh, context um, it, it is not obviously going to work uh, because it's not organically developed from that context. Um, so it, it's something that, that is problematic, even at the level of theory, I think, let alone in the outworking in reality. That, that's, that's very true. That's very true. Gokalp's nationalism, and, and, and I'll, um, thank you for that, because th that point you've made, again, will become more apparent, and I hope you remind me of that later uh, again. Um, uh, Gokalp's nationalism was pretty intense, okay? Um, he uh, talks about loyalty to the nation, taking precedence over loyalty to family or religion, and Turkism being given the highest priority to nation and fatherland. And now these kind of, this wording is very important and you'll see why. Uh, Kemal, Mustafa Kemal, who was influenced by Kukalp, is said to have influenced Adolf Hitler. Mm. Hitler was very impressed by the way that, now look at the parallels here. Uh, the Treaty of Versailles um, after World War I was mm. quite a punitive treaty on Germany which left it quite humiliated mm. and, uh, and, and impoverished. And that was exploited by Hitler, the nationalist, mm. who, who assumed power through his, uh, his Nazi party and through thuggery and through fascism uh, and illegitimate and, and by taking out his enemies, basically, as well. Okay. And built and tried to build a very cohesive, uh, German nationalism, Aryan nationalism, uh, mm. which which is how he united people, and and Hitler admired the way that Mustafa Kemal had done this in uh, his uh, in in in, in post World War One uh, uh, Turkey. Okay, and uh, and uh, this is well described, and and in fact Kemal's rise to power. He kept a lot of views buried. He was he was part of a of a society called Vatan, which could be translated as nation or fatherland, uh, which was a secret society which absolutely opposed the rule of Sultan Abdul Hamid, uh, and it was quite nationalistic. And it, it 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 Patrick Kinross, very eminent British historian, who's the biographer of Mustafa Kemal, mentions that quite early in his life. He had gone from kind of being non-practicing to agnostic to actually disbelieving, um, but he had to hide a lot of those views, uh, given mm. 
the atmosphere, Turkey being a very religious place in those days, mm -hmm. even amongst the more secular elites, they were, you know, yeah. they could have been doing many things which were haram, drinking and whatever, but but actually they still believed in Allah and his messenger and the core tenets of Islam. Yeah. Um, he was seen as the hero of Gallipoli in World War One. He had a few years in the wilderness after that, but after 1918 and the, the fall of Turkey and the Ottoman state in the World War I and the Treaty of Sevres in, in, in 1920, which was a really punitive treaty on, on the Ottomans, mm. um, he stoked feeling against the new caliph in, uh, and the new regime in Istanbul, uh, saying they, they capitulated to the demands from the West he stoked nationalist feeling. Um, uh, he uh, led the war against the Greeks in the uh, who were given part of the Ottoman uh, territory to to uh, occupy after the war, mm. and um, in doing that, he became even more of a hero. And he set up a rival revolutionary government in Ankara. So. Uh, by this stage, the, the Ottoman state has two governments, one in Ankara, one in uh, in Istanbul. Um, the Istanbul being in, the, the Khalifa being in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. um, and, and strangely, the British at the Lausanne Conference, two, three years after Sevres in 1922, they send an invitation to the Ankara government to attend, as well as the... Uh, the Istanbul government, and and this empowers the uh, the nationalists so much so that within months of 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 um, of attending that conference, they then go and abolish the sultanate. So effectively, mm -hmm. they do a coup within Turkey to assume power. So this is how these events lead to the eventual demise of the Khilafah as well. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, when you talk to people, in obviously Kemal is a hero for some Turks and he's a hero for secularists over here. Oh, yeah. I mean, as you know, I mean, we visit uh, Istanbul these days. Uh, um, you know, he, he is uh, publicly a great hero. There are statues and uh, portraits all over the place, flags, you name it. He's um, a very visible, vivid uh, symbol of Turkish nationalism today. Absolutely. So, so there's this debate about, is he a genuine nationalist who opposed Western imperial interference mm. and wanted the liberation of his country? Um, or is he a, was he a secular nationalist ideologically bent mm. on destroying the Khilafah who kept his views hidden until he could career his way into power? Um, mm. and, and there are very mixed messages about Mustafa Kemal. So uh, Reza Pankhurst in his book, The Inevitable Calif Caliphate, he, he gives a couple of quotes where he talks about the liberation of Istanbul, this is Mustafa Kemal, by the way, the liberation of Istanbul would win the applause of mankind and pave the road to liberation, which the Islamic world is yearning for by delivering the seat of the caliphate from foreign influence and defending it with religious fidelity in a manner worthy of its glory. Okay. Uh, and, um, and then a couple of years later, we need to separate the caliphate from the sultanate and abolish the latter. Okay, um, and, and another quote, uh, the issue of the caliphate is the greatest Islamic affair, since it is the leadership that binds all the people of Islam. But then he goes on to say it was shouldn't be political because it's completely natural for the position of the caliphate to exist side by side 
with the people of authority. So you can see he's nuancing his views, caveating his views, even hiding his views at this stage. Mm. Um, but like I say, Patrick and Ross mentions these always careful until his military victory was won to imply in public the orthodoxy of his religious views. Um, but then later he became more free to talk about this. Um, um, Can I just ask so, you, so that, that biography yeah. by Patrick Kin Ross, would, would you recommend that as a good uh, biography? Or so, uh, so it's a very interesting biography. It's a very detailed biography. Um, it looks like a serious Western history as opposed to a hatchet job. Um, yeah. I, I just think... Um, just I would take it everything with a pinch of salt, to be honest with you, when when we you know, all historians come with their biases. So if you go to Turkey and you look at their histories, they're going to be very influenced by Kemalism and the secular trend. You're finding some more Ottoman inspired historians nowadays coming from Turkey. I'd be very interested if some of their stuff is translated to to know this this history from uh, from a different aspect. For me, that's the big missing link here, actually, in English. Yeah, there just on that very point, I mean, this is precisely one of those new um, yes. histories, Sultan Abdul Hamid II, the last great Ottoman uh, Sultan, this by a guy called uh, Mohammed Harb. Um, he, he's, uh, uh, I mean, he's a very serious historian, but he's definitely right. He's definitely a um, pro uh, Abdul Hamid. Um, this, is, this is translated from uh, Turkish. So this has actually not been out. Uh, for very for very long um, in English, so he's a he's a well known Ottoman historian. He's been serving in the field for sixty years. This is uh, his biography, but he's definitely pro uh, uh, caliphate, pro Sultan from a traditional uh, perspective. So uh, yeah, and I, I've tried when preparing this to to try and show that there are two views out there. But I mean, there's no secret about where my, uh, where my, which side I'm on. But, but, but actually, you know, this question I said, was he a genuine nationalist who opposed imperial interference? Or was he an ideological secularist bent? Well, let's look at what he did after he abolished the Khilafah. He established his Kemalism in his Kemalism theory with six principles, republicanism, populism, nationalism, laicism, statism, and reformism. And, um, Kemal himself apparently described it as a kind of Jacobinism. All right, now mm. that will make more sense to you than it will to many other. Yeah, because it all sounds very French. Because you mentioned republicanism, the French Revolution in seventeen eighty nine, which was republican. It was populist. It was certainly nationalist. Laicite is the official ideology of republican France today. Reformism, Jacobit, the, the Jacobites, of course, were uh, you know uh, led by someone called a uh, Robespierre. That's it in seventeen eighty nine. You know, the, the, these people who really wanted to push the secular, uh, militant, republican ideology uh, in France. And it was ultimately taken over by Napoleon, of course. So this is all very French, if I may put it that it way. Is. Absolutely. <laughs> and that, that tells you a lot about what his ideological trajectory must have been. Um, I think so. I think so. And, yeah. and uh, this quote, by the way, uh, or this, this implication is referenced in one of the Oxford encyclopedias about the Islamic world, which I couldn't actually access. So uh, I'll, I'll, that's a disclaimer here. Um, and then in, in Kemalism in practice, that's Kemalism in theory. Kemalism in practice is mm. the abolition of the Khilafah the secularization of education system on the same day, the hat law, which is why I put that picture of him in a top hat, because he abolished hats like this. He abolished the Turkish fez or the, the Tabush. Uh, there's a big yeah. 
big factory in Istanbul, which uh, someone showed me. This was closed down, they said, by uh, yeah. Kamal. Um, and it actually became a, an offence for uh, the ulama, for example, to wear these fez um, around. They had to remove them and wear, you know, bowler hats or whatever, um, but not the fez. He, he abolished various things to do with the Sufi orders. He, he had introduced a civil marriages act. So the, the rules around marriage were, were based around secular law rather than Islamic law. Um, mm. He adopted a Latin script and abolished the Arabic script. Ottoman Turkish was lit, written in the Arabic script. You see all those beautiful old mosques and palaces and stuff. You'll see Ottoman Arabic yeah. written everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he banned titles like Effendi and Bey and Pasha, mm. which were traditional through the Ottoman uh, era. He had a law against wearing indigenous garments, meaning those clothing that we might say look more quote unquote yeah. Islamic, like mm. thobes and women's headdress and things like that. And yeah. there's a constitutional prohibition on the denial of. Uh, Kemalism, and in fact, you know, you can't insult the guy in Turkey. It's it's against the law. You can't. It's quite yeah. serious offence. Yeah. So, so that's Kemalism in practice. You're so saying I, whatever the ambiguity may have been about was he pro caliphate or not? In practice, the proof of the pudding's in the eating. What did he do? Uh, and and the list here is quite clear which side he was really on in practice in terms of the actual laws he enacted. Yeah. 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 And, and and you know, this is about him as a. This is about him as a. Politically, but, it, but there's a lot written about him as a personal individual. Like you know, he, he used to drink huge amounts of spirits. He died from cirrhosis of the liver. Actually, you know, these things are neither here nor there. Actually, I'll be mm. frank with you. I mean, in the sense that, in the sense that you'll find maybe rulers in history who actually governed very well and according to Islamic rules, and they had many shortcomings in their personal life. Okay, but mm. but. I think the lesson from this is look at somebody at, as a whole, what they do, not just what they say, not mm. just, you know, so all these pro-Islamic Khilafah statements he made, um, that they're, they're, they're like, it's got to be judged against what the trajectory of his actions are. Mm. And, um, and, and this is it. And don't just, don't just treat him like a hero because he won, he, he won a famous victory in Gallipoli and he won a famous victory over the Greeks uh, and then people, it seems to me, people in the political class in Turkey were accepting what he was doing uh, because he had been viewed as a hero before. And that's mm. a big lesson for us um, today. Mm. And, and this can be seen through the impact on the Muslims at the time. Big question. Uh, and there's a lesson coming up here about understanding ideas, understanding Islam, Mm. understanding what Islam says about Khilafah, about ruling, about the, the relationship between the ruler and the ruled, and accounting the Khalifa, but also accepting the Khalifa as the lawful governor, the lawful Amir, okay? But also understanding those political ideas from Kufr, which confuse people uh, sometimes. So, you know, people don't always understand that democracy, the nation-state, have republicanism they have implications theologically not just uh, not just neutral they're not neutral political things yeah. Yeah. And, and this is a man who who really helps us understand this he's mustafa sabri effendi uh -huh. uh, was yeah. the last sheikh al-islam mm -hmm. uh, and 
uh, of the Ottoman Khilafah. And he uh, recognized the threat that was coming. He could see what Kamal was doing. He saw the rise of secularism in Europe and European rationalism and materialist ideas arising in the Middle East. Um, and he understood them. I, I, I didn't know this until researching for this, but Mustafa Sabri uh, wrote um, a three-volume work on Western thought, refuting it, taking on arguments by Kant and Darwin, amongst others. So I, I get the sense that maybe, maybe he understood what was happening because he had this greater understanding mm. of, of the, the, the things that were driving people like Kamal and others at that time. If actually, if I may be slightly rude, uh, if you had um, done some search on blogging theology videos, uh, you, you noticed that um, uh, a friend of mine, Amir, who's a brilliant young scholar at the University of Oxford, he's a Turkish, ethnically Turkish German guy who's at Oxford at the moment. He's done two programs or sessions on blogging theology about uh, Sabri Effendi already. Uh, and we've discussed uh, his ideas, particularly pertaining to uh, Kant uh, and, and Western secular thought, and there's a there's a third video um, uh, that's still pending. Uh, Amir is slightly busy doing his masters at Oxford in one year <laughs> at the moment. Wow. Um, but Effendi is an enormously important um, uh, uh, intellectual figure um, in the Turkish world, and his thought is only now beginning, I think, to be appreciated in Western academic circles at Oxford, particularly, for example. Um, but um, no, if, if you had, uh, um, there was a couple of BT programs about him already. <laughs> oh, that's a big shortcoming on my part that I haven't sat through every single blogging theology episode so far, but I'll do my best to rectify that. <laughs> Good. Uh, if you said, I'd actually later on, I appreciate if you send me the link to that, those oh, programs. Very they, interesting. Indeed. <laughs> um, and, and there's a very interesting Mona, Mona, um, Hassan, in her book, Longing for the Lost Caliphate, which I do recommend, actually. Mm, yes. uh, she, she describes this, um, uh, inter this interaction between very two, two very sincere men. Mustafa uh, Sabri was one. Mm. And a very famous Egyptian poet called Ahmed Shawqi. Um, and uh, Ahmed Shawqi is famous because he's written a long poem uh, uh, mourning the loss of the caliphate. Mm. describing it like somebody's plunged a knife into his mother um mm. and, and and you know in arabic and it's 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 people who know the poem are very moved by it when they when they read it now shoki uh, according to um muna uh, muna hassan um actually had a lot of admiration for mustafa kemal during the Turkish War of Independence, and he lionized him in his poetry. Mm. Um, and in fact, he insulted the, the or, or denigrated the Sultan at the time, um, who had been portrayed as some kind of British agent for, for uh, capitulating to the demands made by the British under huge pressures after World War I. Mm. Um, and then when Mustafa Kemal abolished the Khilafah, uh, Shoki was stunned. Um, and uh, he, he, he wrote his poem then, and he condemned Mustafa Kemal for it. And, um, uh, and even the, the, the last Khalifa, Abdul Majid, he admired the poem, but, but Mustafa Sabri, his response to Shalpi was, yes, it's been obliterated, despite the ignorance of those who did not hear the poem. Yeah. Indeed. And, and I, I felt uh, very sad when I heard this. And what, one, I felt very great admiration for Mustafa Sabri for being so on the ball. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, 
Shawqi was clearly somebody who had an attachment and an understanding of the importance of Khilafah, mm. and he clearly didn't see it coming. Uh, and, and that gives you some idea of the kind of political shenanigans that were going on at the time. Yeah, yeah. Sabri, of course, was in the administration in Istanbul, so he would have seen it much more close up. Um, yeah, so, so, so Sabri is great, uh, as you can tell from the, the other BT videos that have been done. He really understood the Western intellectual tradition and political philosophy extremely well. Uh, you know, he, he, he was in a sense bilingual. He, he was obviously a Muslim scholar and a, West, a scholar of the Western tradition. Uh, quite exceptional man. Hmm. Uh, in Britain, uh, okay, the, so around the world there were big, big shocks, in, in India particularly, and, and we'll come back to the theme in India. India is a very important uh, matter in the issue of the abolition of Khilafah um, for, for several reasons. One is um, British policy towards the Ottoman Khilafah was predicated on the fact that they had to secure their most valuable interest anywhere in the world, which was India. And Russia had their eyes on India, Napoleon had his eye on India, um, uh, the British feared the Germans eventually would have their eye on India as Germany rose as a power. And a lot of British policy in the 19th century was about how to keep the Ottoman Caliphate as a buffer, as a, as in their sphere of influence, to protect India. Okay, um, mm. so this is one aspect. The other aspect is India had famously more Muslims in, or the British Empire had more Muslims living under the British Empire than they were living under the Ottoman state. Okay, mm. um, so but those Muslims saw the Khalifa as their Khalifa. The Sultan in Istanbul was their Khalifa. Very often, if you read um, memoirs of people or biographies, you'll see when they travelled for their Hajj from the Indian subcontinent, they would also go to Constantinople, to Istanbul, because mm. that was where the Khalifa was. Many of the scholars from the Indian subcontinent would have visited there. Um, and uh, in India, there was a great awareness about what was happening in Turkey and, and a great... Um, um, agitation there. Uh, but let's look at Britain, because that's where we are, you and I, Paul, although your viewers will be around the world. And um, the general attitude of the most famous English Muslim at the time, Sheikh Abdullah Quilliam in Liverpool, who uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid had appointed as the Sheikh al-Islam of the British Isles. Yeah. Um, uh, he had generally had a very positive attitude to the Uthmani Khilafah, um, to the Ottoman Khilafah. He, he gave a fatwa in, um, in uh, the late 19th century, actually, when, when the British were about to embark on a campaign in Sudan against the Mahdi. Um, and he gave a fatwa basically saying, and this would have been relevant to Indian Muslims who were in the British army at the time, that, that if any Muslim assisted that campaign against other Muslims, even to the extent of giving a piece of bread or a drink of water, then they would, their name would no longer be worthy to be continued on the role of the faithful. And mm -hmm. later on in 1896, in response to seeing material in England from Egyptian separatists calling for the breakaway of Egypt from the Uthmani Khilafah, he, he, he mentioned in one fatwa, the Christian powers are preparing a new crusade in order to shatter the Muslim powers under the pretext that they desire to civilize the world. 
O Muslims, don't be deceived by this hypocrisy. Unite yourself as one man. Let us no longer be separated. The rendezvous of Islam is under the shadow of the Khilafate. Uh, now, he clearly sees this in a civilizational challenge terms in those days. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, Marmaduke Pickthall uh, was slightly later into Islam than Quilliam. Uh, so by this stage, 1896, Pickthall was not a Muslim. He was a Turcophile. He, um, in the early 20th century, he uh, was very critical of the Sultan Abdul Hamid regime, seeing it as too autocratic. Um, and he very much welcomed the rise of the Young Turks, not because they were seen as secular, not because they were seen as nationalists. In fact, many of the Young Turks were, uh, were wanted a, a pan-Islamic agenda. Right, they just didn't like the way the Ottoman state was handling it um, up to that point, and they were rebelling against that. Um, but uh, Pickthall and Pickthall, so Pickthall, in his early time of of interest in in the issue, was very pro Young Turk, very critical of the Khilafah to the extent even that when the Khilafah was abolished in 1924, there's one reference I found in a biography that said that. Um, Uh, he thought, well, it may it may not even be a bad thing. It may be kind of the kick that we need was the kind of implication of it to mm -hmm. get our house in order. But very quickly after that, um, he he seems to have uh, he seems to have adopted a more orthodox approach and seeing, you know, he he joined with Muslims in India in on the same day organizing a an all Mus an all Indian Muslim conference on the Khilafah, a day of prayer for the Sultan Caliph, mm. uh, Pickthall held a similar conference in Notting Hill, defending the incumbents uh, as uh, our Khalifa and Imam, the revered successor of the final prophets of the Lalaih Um And, and Pickthall was a very interesting character. He, he, he wrote a lot exposing the post-war um, uh, settlement where proxy client rulers were being installed in places like Jordan and uh, mm. and Iraq and 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 Egypt and uh, was was on the uh, you know the radar of the of the intelligence services here and there was there was a there was a question of whether to prosecute him for sedition uh, and in the end the the, the 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 correspondence the secret correspondence shows that Uh, they decided not to only because they feared his day in court would expose the relationship between the British government and and those rulers even more. Of um, course, these days he's he's kind of mainly known, if only known, Pickthall as the the very benign translator of the uh, Quran into uh, English, and his translation was extremely popular. Uh, Uh, but but the, the, this political side of him, and you know, on the radar of the intelligence services, that shows a much more interesting and complex character. It does, and in, in fact, there's a very good book on this called Loyal Enemies, which goes through by Jamie Gillam, which goes through a lot of the 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 the, the, the English converts, the British converts to Islam in that era, mm. and and it mentions quite a lot about Pickthall and another another book about Pickthall called by Peter Clark, which I think big sections of that are available to read online, actually. Um, mm. Okay. Um, uh, we've mentioned about India, really. There was a Khilafat movement which was seen as not just pro Khilafa but anti, anti, um, it was a kind of a rallying call for people to rally around in India against the occupation there, so mm. much so that even Gandhi joined it. <laughs> yeah. it was, 
Yes, I remember reading that thinking Gandhi, uh, this Hindu nationalist. Uh, yeah. But no, you're right, he supported the caliphate. Uh, and he yeah. had yeah, a very amazingly appreciative of the Prophet Muhammad himself upon MBB. So, so, so in, again, lesson three, just to reiterate, some of the examples of that are in a struggle of ideas. You need to know the nature of kufr in, 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 in the political sense, I would say, and Islam in a political sense, if you really are going to get the understanding right of what's happening. So I think the next phase I move to is really kind of backtracking a bit more uh, as to how did we get to that day and those events um, that allowed people to interpret Islam as, you know, being pretty much secular, to be honest with you. And, mm -hmm. and I think there are a lot of lessons for us today because a lot of the arguments that even respected practicing Muslim scholars and academics bandy around nowadays about caliphate and Islamic politics seem to be the same kind of arguments that were only present in the late part of the 19th century, the early part of the 20th century, in this mix of strange politics and ideas that were going on then. Mm. So when we look at how we got there, we have to look at three things. The ideas, internal problems within the Ottoman state, and external factors, external pressures. Um, and, and this is where I find it might get a bit confusing, so you might have to keep me a bit on track, Paul. Okay, I'll do my best. Yeah. So when we talk about ideas, I think it's important to talk about nationalism and mm. other secular ideas that emerged. Yeah. Uh, and a lesson here is ideas aren't neutral, right? Um, when, uh, some of these guys that we'll mention, you know, when it came to things like Greek philosophy, because people like Al-Ghazali and others had done the hard work for them and they'd studied that, they could they could spot where they conflict with Islam. Mm. But But it seems to me some of the kind of later ideas, nation state, democracy, uh, ideas that came out of the French Revolution, the the American War, American War of Independence, Declaration of Independence, these kind of ideas, I don't think they got them so much, and I don't think they judged them according to Islam. I think they tended to uh, look at them as something neutral uh, that they could just implement if they wanted to. Uh, and that, this is a big lesson here. Um, so, in, in particular, it's almost like some of these guys frame politics in either Hobbesian or Lockean terms, meaning either the ruler is all-powerful and divinely sent and we have to obey him, or, you know, people should have the authority to account and remove him. And you, you, you get, I mean, they haven't, I haven't seen things that explicitly talk about these, this language, but, 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 except in Reza Pankhurst's book, The Inevitable Caliphate. But mm. um, uh, you really do get a sense when you read about some of these characters, that's the way they were. Um, nationalism had big implications. Probably the first time it really had a political impact was in Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Remember, the Ottoman Khilafah was a European empire. It was viewed by the Europeans as part of Europe. Mm. Um, and what is now the Balkans, Serbia, Kosovo, 
Croatia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Macedonia, and Eastern Europe, Bulgaria, Romania, even as far as Poland, were all part of the Ottoman Khilafah. Okay. Mm. And it's well recognized that European powers and Russia tried to incite the Christian minorities that were seen as uh, Ottoman citizens by the, the Ottomans themselves um, as uh, to I- I rebel against the Khilafah uh, mm. and to break away. And slowly over the end part of the 19th century and early 20th century, you saw separatism rising, nationalism rising in these places in Eastern Europe. And they did indeed break away into their own nation mm. states. Mm. Turkish nationalism of the type that Gokalp, uh, Ataturk's uh, influencer, was um, advocating was pretty alien. Actually, Bernard Lewis, neocon historian from the United States, I think they call him Bernard Lewis, uh, Bernard Lewis, um, in the 19th century, he says, the Turks thought of themselves primarily as Muslims. The loyalty belonged to Islam, and not even to the Ottoman state. The term Ottoman was understood not in a national sense, but in a dynastic sense, like Umayyad or Abbasid or Seljuk. The concept of an Ottoman nation, an Ottoman fatherland, as foci of national and patriotic loyalty were 19th century innovations under European influence. So you see the influence of ideas about the nation state uniting around your national identity rather than an mm. uh, Islamic identity were, uh, were, were, were fairly late um, issues. And they were of a brief duration. The Turks themselves showed very little national consciousness. Um, and the Ottomans, interestingly, said no, no racial al- arrogance or exclusiveness, no insistence on pure Turkish descent. Islam was the entry requirement, which opened the door to real power and social status to Albanian, Greek, Slav, as well as Kurd and Arab. So so, uh, he describes a very different kind of mentality through most of Mm -hmm. the Ottoman history to what happened in the last few decades of decline. Arab nationalism uh, emerged quite late in the Ottoman Khilafah as well. The Al Saud tribe had been periodically rearing its head for a couple of hundred years, or 150 years at least, um, beforehand, rebelling against the Ottomans, uh, even briefly taking Mecca and Medina, attacking Baghdad, creating all kinds of bloodshed, um, exploiting the link with the uh, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, uh, who had criticisms of the excesses as he saw them in the Ottoman state. Mm. Um, and they were, their initial rebellions were, were extinguished by uh, Muhammad Ali Pasha from Egypt, uh, but periodically they would rise again. And most histories of the uh, Saudi kingdom and the Saudi tribe I think a very good one is by Professor Madawi al-Rashid, illustrate the links to the British, uh, so much so that after World War I, uh, they were given preference over the uh, Hashemite Sharif Hussein, 
who uh, wanted to be the uh, ruler over the Hijaz. Um, the British actually gave it to Abdulaziz ibn Saud. Um, and during World War I, uh, there was um, correspondence between Sir Henry McMahon, British High Commissioner in Egypt, to the Sharif of Mecca, Sharif Hussein, uh, who is the uh, great-grandfather of the current King of Jordan, the Hashemite family in Jordan, okay? So he was known as the Sharif of Mecca, an ancient position, a figurehead position, where he was like a, 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 like a nominal ruler on behalf of the Ottoman Caliph. Um, he, in fact, Sharif Hussein himself was very pro Sultan Abdul Hamid and very anti Young Turk. Um, and but when World War I started, he basically entered into a dialogue with the British and wanted to aspire to unite the Arabs around himself. And so was involved in the Arab revolt against the Ottomans during World War I, which was where T.E. Lawrence uh, was mm -hmm. the link. In the British. This is the famous Lawrence of Arabia, of Lawrence course. Arabia. The famous yeah. uh, movie, of course. Uh, yeah, that you can watch. Yeah, yeah, and then and the movies. The, mm. Obviously, the movie tells it from a British perspective and tries to show Lawrence as a complex mm -hmm. character. Mm -hmm. uh, but but you do get some sense of what's going on. The Turks are the really bad guys, but mm. you do get some sense of the fact that he is playing the Arabs. Okay, mm. and uh, okay, it's a two-way relationship. Sharif Hussein is said to said to have been taking money from the British, the French, and the Ottomans all yeah. at once. Okay, mm. so kind of he's sold himself in more than one direction. Mm. Um, but the the impact of this nationalism can't be understated. Once it translated into the Arab Revolt, the Ottomans, who the, frankly the the British expected to capitulate, the the Allied powers in Western Europe expected the Ottomans to capitulate within about a year of World mm. War One. They did not expect they would still be fighting four years later, okay? Um, and uh, one of... The, so they did pretty well in the war, considering they were mm. considered the sick man of Europe and considering they were at their weakest point in their five, six hundred year history. Mm. Um, but they ended up having to fight on two fronts. So as well as fighting the Western European allies and the uh, and the, the Russians, uh, they had rebellion in the Arabian Peninsula. And almost certainly the fact that they had to fight this rebellion, inspired by the Arab nationalists under Sharif Hussein mm -hmm. and provoked by the British, led to the loss of Jerusalem, Damascus, and Baghdad during the war. So direct occupation of those cities, which again, by the conquering generals that went in, General Allenby into Jerusalem, and, and taking back these, as they saw it, these lands that were won during the crusade, the symbolic aspect of, of British troops entering Baghdad the, the seat of the Abbasid Khilafah uh, into Damascus was just, you know, was they were loving it in Europe. Um, and so this was 1917, I think, wasn't it? When the this was 1917. Jerusalem. Um, yeah. And then you get the, the famous um, 
about full declaration at the same time, promising. Well, there's another story, but yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, that, 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 that's another story. And in fact, interestingly mm. enough, the British had pro pro promised Palestine to, they were they promised it to Sharif Hussein. They mm. promised it to the Zionists. And they were in negotiation with the Ottomans behind closed doors because they thought they weren't necessarily going to win. Uh, okay, so uh, they were, thought they weren't necessarily going to win. So early 1917, they were looking at maybe uh, settling for peace at some stage until the Americans entered the war. Uh, so this, uh, I found this, no, no offence to any Englishman out there, but uh, an Arab proverb that was used at the time, if two fish in the Tigris are fighting, look for the Englishman. Uh, right. And unfortunately, this is the, the, what, what are commonly known as divide and rule. Um, mm. There's a lesson in it for us. Be careful who you trust. Um, and, and, and this, I think, you know, again, we'll see in a minute, where we, we come to later, I should say, maybe not in a minute, but but in later, some of the Ottoman politicians that had developed links to foreign powers were not to be trusted. Uh, and similarly, there were people in the Khilafah, thinkers, writers, who were trusting missionaries from colonial countries in a very strange way. And, and the other lesson I'd say is, be careful what you're impressed by, um, because... Uh, a lot of these people seem to be very impressed by the West. Um, there, there were centers that seemed to emerge in the Ottoman Khilafah where these ideas would spread. So there were embassies where people would visit. Uh, there were missionary outlets in Malta and in Istanbul and in Beirut and in, uh, in Syria. Uh, and... In Istanbul, senior leaders in the Young Turks were, were, were linked to the embassies or would visit London or Paris or had contacts with diplomats. And um, in, in Beirut, you, you have named, there, there, there are some very famous names, uh, uh, Father Louis Sheiko, a Maronite priest who uh, went to the UK. And then he, when he, he, he came back to Beirut, he was introducing new teaching methods. And uh, in Syria, um, Cornelius van Dijk is a famous missionary who was out there. And he was in touch with Arab Christian thinkers like Nasif al-Yasiji and Boutras Bustani, um, who, who, after interacting with, with van Dijk and others, uh, Eli Smith, who was another missionary who was also in both Syria and Malta, um, they set up uh, a Syrian scientific society showing that they were been influenced by some of the kind of more uh, uh, empirical empiricist ideas in Europe um, and um, and the Nahda or Arab awakening movement. So you can see how some of these new ideas were entering into the Khilafah at this stage. And it's important to think of the context. I mean, we're talking about the end of the um, 19th century. So just just a hundred years or so before you had the Declaration of Independence in the US and the French Revolution, uh, the rise and fall and rise and fall of Napoleon, uh, <laughs> basically, uh, yeah. where where and, and obviously a lot of the debates around that was you know how much power he took and how much power was checked from him and and this is comes back to your point, Paul. Um, about some of these guys looking at what's happening in Ottoman uh, Europe and Turkey 
through the lens of a foreign experience. Um, so they're seeing this rise of, of Europe technologically and they're seeing the, the, the changes in political changes in Europe and they're looking at their own state where very often people have been looked after, people are getting opportunities to advance. They, they you know, it's not, it's not that there's you know, deep, deep oppression like you see in other places in the world, but they're critical of the, the, the system that they're seeing as too authoritarian without enough, enough checks and balances. And it's against that backdrop that a lot of these ideas are being brought into the Khilafah, basically. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And by, and by the way, they're being promoted very often by the British, who at the same time are repressing people in India and the colonies from having their kind of independence movements. Well, and their... That's very interesting. I mean, someone like J.S. Mill, the, the 19th century uh, English uh, philosopher, he wrote famously a book called On, on Liberty, a utilitarian philosopher. He actually says in, in his work that these ideas of liberty, of individualism, freedom, um, are only really for the white man. Uh, they're not for other peoples. Uh, they, he argued, uh, argues, uh, are better suited to authoritarianism or despotism and so on. So th- this kind of colonialist kind of racial um, understanding is, is very explicit in, in, I mean, this guy is lauded as, as a great, you know, J.S. Mill is a great um, articulator of the idea of British liberty and freedom. But it really it was only for the British and was intended to be for British and not for anyone else. So um, this is often forgotten. It's just seen as a kind of a universal creed, but it was not understood to be so at all. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there, there are a couple of Ottoman thinkers I've put down here who were looking at ideas of the nation state and governance and seeing how they can change uh, can bring change in the Ottoman Khilafah. Uh, Rifa Rafi al-Tahtawi and Khair al-Dil al-Tunsi are two figures who are mentioned in, in some of the works. And, and later on, Jamal al-Dil al-Afghani, uh, uh, who died in 1897. Now, he, he's a very interesting character who uh, is seen as a reformer. He's seen as anti-colonial. He's seen as uh, uh, a pan-Islamist, right? Um, all these things. But but actually, um, there are some odd views as well about politics, about parliamentary democracy versus shura, uh, mm. lack of clarity about political ideas. And there, there's some relationships he had with uh, Wilfred Blunt, uh, a famous Orientalist that used to go and visit the Middle East. And Blunt, in his memoirs, describes Jamal al-Afghani as a, as a liberal, basically. So, uh, and Afghani himself influenced this man, Muhammad Abdu, a very famous Azhari scholar in Egypt, um, and a very controversial figure, because amongst traditionalists, the Sufis, the traditionalists, the, the ones who stick to four madhabs that didn't, that felt that all the ijtihad that was necessary had been done, Abdu is a heretic. Okay, because he was a revivalist who thought we need to go back to the original texts of Islam and look at Quran and Sunnah and understand the modern world in that light. Okay, um, the, the the thing is, uh, people out there might think, well, what's wrong with that? That that seems eminently reasonable. We've got new issues. We need to have new ijtihad. Uh, so Quran and Sunnah is where you'd get that ijtihad. Mm. I feel Abdu didn't have an anchor 
uh, okay, what really Ijtihad can be biased by your own opinions. He had traveled to Europe. He had uh, um, very favorably been impressed by Europe. Lord Cromer, Evelyn Baring, the, the, the governor of Egypt, described him as a man of broad and enlightened views to recognize the necessity for European assistance in the work of reform. So if your ijtihad is going to be influenced by that, then you're going to you know, get it wrong, frankly. And Abdul, um, he had views, he had opinions, some of which are respected, but on politics, he seems to have influenced people in a very strange direction. And two of his most famous students are uh, Abdurrahman al-Kawakibi, uh, who w really uh, was very critical of the Ottoman Khilafah and led to Arabs calling for sovereignty of Arab nations and a pan and Arab nationalism. And he was influenced by Abdu and uh, Ali Abdurrazik, uh, who studied Azhar under Abdu and then at Oxford in 1912. And he wrote this book after the fall of the Khilafah called Islam and the Foundation of Governance. Uh, uh, and uh, it was basically denying that Islam had anything to say about politics, that mm. Khilafah wasn't part of Islam, that having a Khalifa and any Islamic ruling system wasn't part of Islam. Uh, and he was his book was so roundly condemned that he was stripped of his scholarly qualifications basically there was a there was a kind of a tribunal set up at al-azhar and his work was dissected kind of point by point and at the end of it they they and this was a student of abdul so somewhere mm -hmm. along the line these ideas these reformist ideas and there's a lesson again i said ideas are not neutral they need to be measured against islam uh, be careful who you trust and who you're impressed by, because a lot of these guys I've mentioned just now, they travelled to London or they travelled to uh, France, or they, in fact, rather unkindly, somebody once went said of Muhammad Abdu that he travelled to and fro to France many times and never actually managed to do his Hajj. So, um, you know, so that they kind of like, you know, his enemies were quite ruthless in criticising him uh, mm -hmm. in that way. Um uh, be careful what you're impressed by. In fact, there's a beautiful quote from Pickthall in his book, With the Turk in Wartime, where he described being, I hear of English people talking about the Turks as hopeless, no vitality left in them, no enthusiasm in prospects. I can only think they have never met with the young men of Turkey or have met only those who have been educated amongst Europeans. So he's, he's saying, basically, if you meet these negative people, they're the ones that have been educated by you, not the ones that I've met in Turkey. Uh -huh. In this opinion, I'm hardened by the fact that all the Ottoman young men of my acquaintance, and he mentions not just Muslim, but non-Muslim as well, Muslim and Christian alike, he said, informed me that I was the first European with whom they had ever had much conversation, whereas the other type of youth, yeah, the ones who are hopeless, who have no enthusiasm and prospects, the other type of youth inclines to seek out Europeans and adopt their cynical and hopeless standpoint towards the Muslim world. Wow. And this chap here is Mustafa Kemal, mm. before the fall of the Khilafah, when he's a military hero, and he's sent off, to, when he's a military man, and he's sent off to France on a training and diplomatic mission. And 
uh, doesn't he look the part? I mean, it's like it's like really almost somebody who's gone there and trying to be more French than the French, because I, 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 I doubt if every Frenchman in those days would have had a stick like that and uh, it, no. the gloves and everything with it. Um, don't judge a situation from a Eurocentric perspective. That's your lesson, Paul, as well as mine. Mm. And don't try to make changes that are just Sharia compliance. A lot of these guys who are thinking about bringing nationalism, bringing Shura and democracy, if you like, uh, used to try, and even in the Ottoman state, as we'll later see, with the reforms they brought in, they they tried to make them compliant with the Sharia. Okay, mm -hmm. great credit to them. But actually, they were not going back to our Islamic sources of Quran and Sunnah and seeing how that solves the problem without mm -hmm. the European bias. Yeah, I, I, I just tweeted yesterday as, as one of a verse in the Quran uh, in English. It is not for a believing man or woman when Allah and his messenger decree a matter to have any other choice in that matter. Indeed, whoever disobeys Allah and his messenger has clearly gone far astray. That's Quran 3336. So There's this real tight sense of, you know, um, following uh, Allah and his messenger, uh, you know, in, in these matters that have been clearly decreed and not looking to other ideologies and fashionable opinions um, to guide our lives. Thank you for that. So, so far, mm -hmm. we've looked at the events of March 1924, uh, some of the events leading up to them, but not all by a long shot, and some of the political ideas causing confusion that entered into the Ottoman Khilafah and the Muslim lands at that time. And by the way, you can parallel some of these uh, modernist ideas coming in in India at the same time as well. Uh, but actually, we've still got quite a lot to look at. Internal factors within the Ottoman Khilafah over the century before the demise and external pressures, particularly World War I and its mm -hmm. aftermath. Um, and I thought it would be good to probably take a break at this point because mm. that's kind of information overload. But I'd say there's one silver lining to this very dark cloud, um, which is this, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he's made a promise. Allah has made a promise to those who believe. And that believes the fundamental beliefs in Islam and not believing in anything that contradicts that, like, you know, nationalism, nation states, secularism, these things, and do good acts, yeah? That he will, of a certainty, give them istikhlaf, the same word that khilafah comes from, okay? Successors in the land, as he did with those before them. That he will surely, of a surety, establish their deen, which he's chosen for them. And, and when that happens, he will change their fear into security. Okay? That, and, and that's conditional. That's conditional. Yeah. That, that, uh, that you believe you worship in Allah and will associate nothing with me, with, uh, nothing alongside Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and anyone who does do that, uh, so he says, 
And whoever does that would be of the rebellious. And and that promise uh, is very important for us as Muslims to keep hold of because, uh, you know, history comes in cycles and waves and the sunnah of Allah is comes in cycles as well. And, mm. and, and you know, our, before help and victory and come from Allah, there's often hardship. There's usually hardship. And, and, and our trust in Allah has to be there to, to help in this very difficult time in this century after the fall of the Khilafah. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you very much indeed, sir, for that. We'll break here. We will return with uh, part two, inshallah. So un un until that time. Thank you.